the song obviously is about hope, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So what a perfect segue there. Um, before we jump into though today's message, I just want to review last week. If you were here, if you weren't, it'll give you a little idea of what we talked about. Um, this that God has given ample evidence of His presence and His authority over all things. And we were in the book of Romans chapter 1 last week. And Paul went on, he talked about how when people reject God, they run headlong into sin. When we just we refuse to honor God or, or we reject Him, then of course we just, we just run into sin and it brings us down. When people reject God and stop giving Him thanks, they can be given over to a depraved mind. We talked about that just a little bit last week. And, and I don't know, I didn't really emphasize last week, sometimes when we hear the word depraved, perhaps we think about you know, some crazy guy running around with a knife or something, like this person's depraved or out of their mind. But that's really not even what this is talking about. This could be talking about um, when you turn on the nightly news, the anchor is a person possibly of a depraved mind. They're not able to discern the truth or understand the things of God. That's what that word really means, to be of a depraved mind. Their mind cannot pass the test. That's the biblical definition of it. But today we want to focus on the gospel and grace and hope. I told you last week that it might feel like a, a bit of a downer <laughs> last week's message, but we kind of have to identify the problem before we can deal with the solution, right? We have to admit that we fall short, that we're sinners. And so now this week we're going to talk about the gospel and grace and hope. So Paul made it very clear in Romans 1 how devastating it is to reject God and to, and to not honor Him as God. And in chapter 3, verse 23, he says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I'm pretty sure when you look up the definition of the word all, it means all. <laughs> all is all-inclusive. It, it, no one's left out. So everybody is guilty of this, and we're all in a very... Um, devastating place outside of Christ. So he says that in, in 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in 6.23, he says the wages of sin is death. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story for us wayward sinners. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. Let's pray before we get into it. Father in heaven, we come before you Lord, and we are humbled by your presence, by your love, your mercy, and your grace. And we do identify, Lord, as people who so many times have gone our own way. And we have missed the mark. So we, we fall into that category of being labeled a sinner. We've all done that. And Lord, we just know that our only hope is in you and in what you've done. I pray that through these, these passages this morning, Lord, that you will speak to our hearts and just uh, allow us to be encouraged and to realize how important it is and what a blessing it is to be able to have the hope for eternal life that you give us through what Jesus has done, nothing that we've done on our own. So will you just be glorified in our midst, Lord, and help us to 
have open hearts to what you have to say to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul points out that we have to die in order to live. I think that's a concept that as a believer you're probably familiar with. You have to die to yourself in order to be made alive in Christ. So uh, opening up to Romans chapter 6, verses 11 through, uh, 11 through 15, he writes this, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. So sin gets put to death when we fall under grace and out from under the law. Since we're under grace, sin should no longer be master. Verse 14, sin shall not be master over you. Why? Because you're not under law anymore, but you're under grace. And uh, Paul asked the same question in verse 15, uh, where he says, uh, in 14 he says, sin shall not be master over you. are not under law, but under grace. In 15 he says, what then? Shall we sin? Because we're not under law, but under grace, may it never be. It's a very similar question to what he asked in chapter 6, the first two verses. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might abound? May it never be. Why is that? Because those who have died to sin shall not still live in it. So Paul describes our dilemma, and then he talks about how to be free Let's jump over to chapter 7. This is kind of a longer um, section, but I think it's, uh, it's worth our effort and our time to read verses 1 through 11. Or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So even if, while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh... The sinful passions passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin 
became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So Paul compares our relationship with the law and, and sin to marriage. And we know that marriage is intended to be for life, right? So the only way to be released from a covenant of marriage is by death. One of the parties has to pass away, and then you're released from the covenant. And he talked about, you know, a, a wife would be considered an adulteress if she married while her husband was still living. And we know that for marriage, vice versa, the same thing is true, whichever way you look at it. One of the partners has to die. But the problem is, in this sin-law relationship, is that the law never dies. The fact is, the law is not even really the root of the problem. Verse 7 tells us that. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So the law is not the problem. Sin is the problem, and law, the law reveals the problem. The law reveals sin in our life. So if we're married to the law, and the law is, isn't a good partner, and the law doesn't die, and the only way to be free to marry a better husband is by death, then guess who has to die? If you said me, you get the, you get the bonus points. We have to die, right? The law is always going to be there. And it's just kind of indifferent. It'll always be there. So we have to die if we want to be freed from that relationship. Uh, verses 4 and 6. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to do what? To die to the law. Who was made? You were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. And then verse 6. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. So when we say yes to the one who lived a perfect life and overcame death, our spirit is made alive with him. And we've died to the law. We've died to the sinful flesh. Paul makes it very clear that the path to life and freedom is to be married to Christ. And this happens through grace. So it is time to die to sin. Who do you want to be married to? The law or the Lord? I prefer the Lord. <laughs> I cannot fulfill the law. I cannot live up to that standard. So I prefer to be married to the Lord. The law is not bad. The problem is the law doesn't love you. It's not benevolent. It's not kind. It's not forgiving. But Jesus loves you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. The law says do this and this and this and, and, then, and then do this and don't do that. But then do this and, and make sure you don't do that. But the grace of Jesus is a better motivator because it's rooted in love. It's like if I, if I gave my wife a beautiful bouquet of flowers and I said, I said, well, as your husband, I really feel like it's my duty and my obligation to give you these flowers. Now, 
I mean, I got to work about an hour and a half every day just to make enough money to pay for these flowers, but, but I need to do it because I'm your husband. And that's what husbands are supposed to do. Now, how well received would those flowers be? But if instead, let's say I went out and I trespassed on about three different people's land because there's wildflowers out there and I crossed six fences at the risk of and peril of my own life and, and, be, and being arrested and being thrown in prison to, to gather these flowers and make, make a bouquet myself with my own hands. I put a lot at risk to do this and I, and I take it to her and I say, dear, you are the most important person in my life. I love you. You're irreplaceable. I would do anything for you. As a matter of fact, I really kind of risk a lot just to make, but it's worth it because you're worth it. And I give her that bouquet of flowers. Which of those scenarios is she likely to respond positively to? I think, I think we know. And that's kind of the way it is between the law and Christ. The type of love, the type of relationship that we receive. So we know that we cannot live up to God's standard in the law and that the law is very unforgiving, but Jesus is totally forgiving. Let's jump over to Romans 8. Now, I want to remind you, sometimes we read Scripture and I think we just say, well, okay, we're going to open the Bible, we're going to read Scripture. This is what Paul said. Well, that's great and that's important to note, but don't forget this. This passage, all these passages, this is... God opening his heart and his mind, and his, this is his message to us. I mean, that's kind of, okay, Paul was a great apostle, and, and he was obedient, and he wrote this letter to the Romans, but this is not about what Paul wrote to the Romans. This is about a message from the creator of the universe to you and I. And so think of it from that perspective when I read these four, first four verses in Romans chapter 8. This is God's message to you. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That would mean a lot to hear that coming from Paul, but how much more does that mean when you, when you think about the fact that Paul was writing what the Spirit of God told him to write, so this is a message from God. And his message to you is, there is there's no condemnation for you when you're in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, of course the New American Standard says God did, but if we're thinking from that perspective, it would say I did. <laughs> Read that again. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, I did, sending my Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in you who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Can you receive that as God's message to you? Not just... Letters on a page, words on a page, but God's message to you. When I read that that way, it just completely changes my perspective. 
what God did, what he says, what I did for you. There's no condemnation because I sent my son for you. Is it any wonder that the gospel is known as the good news? And don't you think we're overdue for some good news in this world? Everywhere we turn, it's just bad and, and negative and worse and everything's horrible. The gospel is the good news. Jesus stood condemned on our behalf by taking on the likeness of sinful flesh. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 2, Paul goes so far as to say that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I'm sure there's will always be a lot of theological debate about exactly what that entails, what that means for Jesus to be sin on our behalf. We know Jesus was sinless, so I don't know that we can go so far as to say that he, he became, he didn't become a sinner on our behalf, but he was impu- what we've done was imputed onto him. He carried that burden. He took that upon himself. It's as if he were a sinner, even though he wasn't, because he took what we deserved upon himself. So that's when Paul says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. He paid the penalty for sin, even though he was sinless, for you and for I. So this describes Jesus' substitutionary death in our place. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. We're jumping around a lot here in Romans. I understand that, but bear with me. Romans chapter 3, uh, 21 through 26. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even, uh, lost my spot. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption. And think about that word justified. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly, here's another big word for you, as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. That he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we are justified by the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now you've probably heard someone say, if you want to kind of understand what it means to be justified, the word kind of tells you, (laughs) it's just as if I had never sinned. You're justified. Just as if I had never sinned. That's That's how we are made through Christ. Just as if we had never sinned. So the word means to to be made or declared righteous. That's what it means to be justified, to be made or declared righteous. So just like, just like Jesus became sin on our behalf, we become righteous on his behalf or because of him. 
What a great trade-off that we could never deserve. Verse 25 uh, describes Jesus as a propitiation. It said, whom God publicly uh, displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. And so to propitiate means to, to avert the wrath of God is what it means. To, to avert or put off the wrath of God by the offering of a gift. And of course, in this case, the gift is Jesus. To make amends for or to extinguish the guilt of. That's what it means to propitiate something. So he was the, our, he was the propitiation for our sins. He removed the guilt. He made amends for us. We know he's our advocate. So it's like he, he stands before the judge and he pleads our case. And he takes the penalty on our behalf. And that is the message of the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace. What an important word that is, grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. So we're saved by grace through faith, and the way it reads we, we could say, well, even the faith is not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. We simply accept it or reject it. So this message of amazing grace, where we don't do anything other than just say, yes, Lord, I accept, I believe. I accept what you've done on my behalf. All the work is up to Him. None of our effort gets us any closer to salvation. To, to being in right standing with God. You know, the good works, those are important, and those come after what He's done for us. So this message of amazing grace gives us hope, and hope is a truly incredible gift. See, the world does not have hope like believers have hope. Webster's defines hope in this way. Okay, this is the Webster's Dictionary definition of hope. To cherish with anticipation, which is not bad as far as what we're going to see biblically what hope is. That first part, we can kind of go with, to cherish with anticipation. But the second half of Webster's definition is to want something to happen. (laughs) And I think I alluded last week to the idea that hope to the believer is not like hope to the world. Hope to the world is basically wishful thinking. You know, where where you think... Well, I hope that my, you know, my car doesn't break down on the way to work, or I hope that it doesn't rain when we go camping. That's wishful thinking. There's no guarantee. There's no promise. It's just, well, we just hope that doesn't happen. But it, it could. It could not. We don't really know. But biblical hope would be defined this way, joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. Joyful and confident expectation. So you expect it because it's already settled. (laughs) You're not wondering, is this going to happen? It's not wishful thinking type hope. That's not what it is. So we got to change our thinking about the way we normally use the word hope. This is such a gift to believers. And and as this world gets more and more crazy and difficult to live in, you're going to need to cling to this promise that you have hope, a joyful expectation, confident expectation. Not, 
well, I hope when I die that I did enough good things that God lets me in. You know, a lot of people think that way. Well, I'm pretty good. I mean, I haven't really done a lot of bad things and went to church and I read my Bible and, and I even tithed occasionally. And, and uh, I, so I think, you know, I stand a pretty good chance. What a horrible way to live. <laughs> Instead, we know it doesn't matter if I went to church. It doesn't matter if I read my Bible. It doesn't, if, as long as, I, I mean, we, we will do those things when we put our faith in Christ because we're a new creation. We want to do those things. But our salvation is not dependent upon the things we do. And what a better way to live to know that I have, I have hope. I don't hope for hope. <laughs> I don't wish I had hope. I don't have wishful thinking. I have a guarantee what a difference that is. So the hope we have in Christ is a certainty, not an empty desire. Our hope is not based on mathematical or logical certainty, but on the certainty of God's will and character. Because, you know, the odds are that when you go out and you get in your car and you, you turn the key or push the button or whatever it is that starts, you don't even think about it most mornings, do you? And it, and, it, and it works like 99% of the time, but there's always that 1% of the time when it doesn't because it's mechanical and it will break down and the battery will go dead or the starter will fry or something's going to happen. So we don't rely upon mathematical certainties with God. It's a certainty based on God's will and His character. So hope of the kingdom of God is different than the hope of the world. This has, is a quote that I ran across. It's been said, Some see a hopeless end, while others see an endless hope. So, as believers, we don't see a hopeless end. We see, and we have, and we <laughs> own an endless hope. It is a guarantee. Perhaps you, know, perhaps you know all of that. You know what God has done for you. You know He is preparing a place for you. But you sometimes let doubt creep in. Well, if you, you, know, if you do that, you're human. <laughs> I mean, you know, we all, sometimes we just, we're in a low place, or you know, we just don't, we're not propped up by these, until we dig back into these promises. Maybe sometimes you feel a sense of despair. Well, I want to share a story with you. I'm going to read it because I'm not a good storyteller. So if I tried to tell it, there's no telling. We would end up no telling where. So I'm going to read you the story of Ling. This guy's name, this kid's name was Ling. Once there was an emperor in the Far East who was growing old and knew it was coming time to choose his successor. Instead of choosing one of his assistants or one of his own children, he decided to do something different. He called all the young people in the kingdom together one day, and he said, It has come time for me to step down and to choose the next emperor. I've decided to choose one of you. The kids were shocked. But the emperor continued, I'm going to give each one of you a seed today. One seed. It's a very special seed. I want you to go home, plant the seed, water it, and come back here one year from today with what you have grown from this one seed. I will then judge the plants that you bring to me, and the one I choose will be the next emperor of the kingdom. There was one boy named Ling who was there that day, and he, like the others, received a seed. He went home and excitedly told his mother the whole story. 
She helped him get a pot and some planting soil, and they planted the seed and watered it very carefully. Every day, he would water it and watch to see if it had grown. After about three weeks, some of the other youths began to talk about their seeds and the plants that were beginning to grow. Ling kept, work, kept going home and checking his seed, but nothing ever grew. Three weeks, four weeks, five weeks went by, still nothing. By now, others were talking about their plants, but Ling didn't have a plant, and he felt like a failure. Six months, Six months went by, still nothing in Ling's pot. He just knew he had killed his seed. Everyone else had trees and tall plants, but he had nothing. Ling didn't say anything to his friends, however. He just kept waiting for his seed to grow. A year finally went by, and all the youths of the kingdom brought their plants to the emperor for inspection. Ling told his mother that he wasn't going to take an empty pot, but she encouraged him to go and to take his pot, and to be honest about what happened. Ling felt sick to his stomach, but he knew his mother was right. He took his empty pot to the palace. When Ling arrived, he was amazed at the variety of plants grown by all the other youths. They were beautiful in all shapes and sizes. Ling put his empty pot on the floor, and many of the other kids laughed at him. A few felt sorry for him and just said, hey, nice try. When the emperor arrived, he surveyed the room and greeted the young people. Ling just tried to kind of hide in the back. My, what great plants, trees, and flowers you have grown, said the emperor. Today, one of you will be appointed the next emperor. All of a sudden, the emperor spotted Ling at the back of the room with his empty pot. He ordered his guards to bring him to the front. Ling was terrified. The emperor knows I'm a failure. Maybe he will have me killed. When Ling got to the front, the emperor asked his name. My name is Ling, he replied. All the kids were laughing and making fun of him. The emperor asked everyone to quiet down. He looked at Ling and then announced to the crowd, Behold, Your new emperor, his name is Ling. Ling couldn't believe it. He couldn't even grow a seed. How could he be the new emperor? Then the emperor said, One year ago today, I gave everyone here a seed. I told you to take the seed, plant it, water, and bring it back to me. But I gave you all boiled seeds which would not grow. All of you, except Ling, have brought me trees and plants and flowers. When you found out that the seed would not grow, you substituted another seed for the one I gave you. Ling was the only one with the courage and honesty to bring me a pot with my seed in it. Therefore, he's the one who will be the new emperor. Sometimes, in this old world, it seems like God's promise is just not producing anything. Sometimes we feel that way. Let's be honest. We know God is faithful, but what we feel in our flesh sometimes is that it's just not producing anything. People will will mock and make fun. You know, oh, you Christians, God promised you eons ago that He was going to return and all this. It never happens. 
Why do you keep believing? So how many times do we substitute all kinds of things in our lives for the hope that we have in Christ? You know, we try this to make us happy or that to make us happy or we try to find fulfillment in something over here or something over there. But what we have to do is hold on to the seed that he planted in us. The seed of hope. That is the only way we will be given the kingdom. And so as our girls come back up to lead us in worship, I want to share one more verse with you. Well, actually, we're going to share some more in a minute. It has to do with the Lord's Supper. But I want to share one more verse in this message with you. Romans 15 and verse 13. It's a great benedictory verse. And again, just this is the Word of God to you. So just receive this verse. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. One of the ways we hold on to the hope we have in Christ is to remember and celebrate what He has done for us. Now, what's what we're going to do with, with the Lord's Supper? Now, did we have a song before? Or, okay. So we're just going to go right, in, right into that. First uh, Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so, on the heels of, of a message that's a reminder of the hope we have through grace, of what God has done for us, we just want to gather and we want to remember. And, and this is what we're instructed to do. And this is what allows us to not try to replace joy and contentment and fulfillment and hope with anything else that this world has to offer. So we gather around this table and we partake of these emblems, the broken body and the, and the bloodshed of Christ represented in, in bread and juice. And so we're going to do that together. I will pray, and then as the girls start uh, the song, um, just feel free as you feel led to come forward and partake, and then uh, we will close after that. Let's pray together. Father, we just come before you again, just humbly, in awe of your presence and of your word. We thank you for the promise that you've given that does give us hope, Lord. And that it, it's, it rises beyond wishful thinking to a guarantee, to a confident expectation. And we're just waiting. We know, Lord, that you have promised us an eternal kingdom and you are preparing a place for us. And your word says you will come again and receive us unto yourself that where you are, we might be also. And so we cling to that promise and that hope and we can live through anything in this world with that knowledge that... Um, 
that we're not citizens of this world. We're citizens of your kingdom. And we're grateful, God, for what you've done through your son. We celebrate that this morning. May our hearts and our minds just be uh, open to you and and what you want to do in us as we just gather around and we remember this most amazing of all stories and messages. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.